When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Giles Brandreth, and this is Rosebud, a podcast all about the first time things happened to fascinating people. Yes, a warm welcome to another edition of Rosebud. But before we start, it's time for some more of your emails. Thank you so much if you have been in touch and do keep them coming. Hearing about your first memories is so evocative. I mean, Diane Leopard from Stoke-on-Trent has written, one of my earliest memories is of travelling in a very small green Hillman Imp car with my parents, grandparents and younger brother. No seat belts required then. We just sat on our grandmother's knee. I must have been about five. It was the late 1960s. I adored my grandfather. He loved singing, and he always used to get us singing wonderful songs wherever we went. Wonderful memories of special times. Well, thank you, Diane. I remember being in the car and on my father's knee. uh, This would be the 1950s, when I was a very little boy, sitting on my father's knee, of course, no seatbelts then, and smoking in the car. My father was a very keen smoker, and I would sit on his knee, Uh, and he would let me steer. I was five or six, and uh, I steered on my own whenever he wanted to actually light a cigarette. So mostly he had his hand on the wheel as well. So I wasn't just sitting there without a seatbelt. I was actually steering the car. (laughs) He was a lawyer too, yes. Anyway, if you have recollections, first memories that you want to share with us on Rosebud, do get in touch. As you know, it's simply hello at rosebudpodcast.com. That's hello at rosebudpodcast.com. Now, never mind me, never mind you. Who's my guest this week? Oh, yes, somebody quite special. For this episode of Rosebud... We came back to our favourite hotel, the Grosvenor House Hotel on Park Lane in London, to meet up with a broadcaster, Ken Bruce. I thought it would be a good idea to take him out of the studio because he has spent his lifetime in studios. But I thought, what is actually the real Ken Bruce? When he was on Radio 2, I think he regularly had audiences of 8 to 9 million people. I mean, he could legitimately claim to be the nation's biggest broadcaster most successful. He's now gone to Greatest Hits Radio and literally millions of his listeners have followed him. He's an unusual person because he is a a DJ. Uh, I've listened to him over the years and I've loved his dry sense of humour, his warm and friendly style. But I do wonder what makes him tick and that's the whole point of Rosebud, going back to beginnings with people, finding out their very first memories and unpacking those to discover where they've ended up. Is it to do with where they began? So, we're going to hear about his school days in Glasgow. Uh, I can remember two of us were taken out and given six lashes of the belt on the hands. We're going to hear about some of the ups and downs in his life. After my second divorce, I found that I was playing records, which really, you know, sad records, like Roy Orbison crying or something like that. It would really bring me down. It would be a struggle to do the next link. And some of the reasons for his exit from Radio 2. Uh, And there was a point of saying that, you know, I 
can't enthuse over all the new music I'm having to play as much as I could over the old music. But it's, it's, a, it's a positive conversation because he's a positive guy. And Rosebud, though a revealing place, is on the whole a positive place. Anyway, this is going to be our time in the Rosebud world with Ken Bruce, broadcaster extraordinaire. Ken, I want you to begin, please, by telling me, if you can, what is your very, very first real memory? Well, it's interesting you say real, because I think a lot of people have an invented first memory, they think. Well, of course it was, uh, I can remember being in my prime, well, I can't. Uh, I vaguely can remember being propped up in front of the coronation in 1953. I'm not sure whether that is a recovered memory or whether it actually did happen. What year? Would, I mean, what, uh, when were you born? I was born 51, so I was two mm. then. It's, it's pretty unlikely. But I, ve- I definitely do remember my first day at nursery school where I cried because my mother had left me and there was a bit of frosted glass in a window which I was hammering on uh, to get her to come back for me. So I would be four, four and a half, then something like that. Uh, that's the first one that I can pinpoint. Um, but uh, I, I like to think I was watching the coronation. I'm told I was. But that's more traumatic, actually, waiting for your mother, feeling your mother's left you. Who was your mother? Who were your parents? Where were you born? I was born in Glasgow in uh, a place called Giffnock in a, uh, a nursing home where Gordon Brown was also born, just a few months difference from me. But, of course, we've never, never met, never known each other. But uh, it was uh, a nursing home that became a hotel and a pub later on, which uh, I was obviously felt I ought to return to as often as possible, revisit the place of my birth. Uh, My dad was a a small businessman, I suppose. He had uh, a couple of little businesses. One was a sweetie shop, a tobacconist's and news agent next to the fire station in Ingram Street in Glasgow. But he, he didn't really work that. My aunt, my aunt Jean did, and he came in on a Saturday and I went in with him and uh, raided all the sweetie jars and sat there playing with the till. One of these great big metal, beautifully ornate tills, which took all my strength as a child to press the buttons down and ring up one and a penny halfpenny for whatever it was. Uh, what but, were your favourite sweets? Can you remember? Uh, sour plumes. Have you ever heard of Ooh. sour plumes? Sour plumes? Sour plumes. Uh, it's a, a corruption of sour plums. Uh, but they were sort of green sweets with a, a, a sour edge. Oh. They were sweet but sour. And uh, I, I loved even those. Even as a little child? Oh, yeah, yeah, I loved those. I, I, li- I like lemon sherbets. Oh, no. And even the, you know, the, with the hard edge, yeah, the sherbet yeah. inside. And then, yeah, they crack open. They and crack and open. But also everywhere. there's a roughness at the top of the mouth that I seem to quite remember oh, enjoying. Right. Yes. Anyway. Well, we, we did sell those, but I didn't, uh, I didn't care for them. So... What sort of a person was he, your father? Was he uh, likeable? Uh, very Yes, likeable, but a very kind of typical Scottish uh, middle-aged man, which he was. But he was 49, I think, when I was born. Oh. And I was the youngest of four, and youngest by six years. So I was um, a little present, shall we say, to the family. You're sure he was your father? Yeah, definitely. I've got his nose. Uh, But, um, yeah, I was the very last, and possibly a slight mistake, but, uh, of course... Being the youngest, I was the apple of my mother's eye. And who was your mother? My mother was Minnie, and uh, she came from a family of uh, railway police, actually. Her uh, father was a railway police inspector in Glasgow, and prior to that, they'd lived in Caithness, in the very, very 
north of Scotland. So they were a Highland family, but they'd come to the central belt of Scotland to, to make their living. And was she a housewife? Yes, she was a homemaker, as they like to say now. But yeah, she uh, looked after all of us and uh, made breakfast, lunch and tea for us every every single day. Can you remember the first tea you enjoyed or the first foods you really loved? Um, bacon. Bacon. Oh. I, I, it stayed with me ever since. Uh, good, thick Ayrshire bacon. There's a joke, of course, about that, but we won't, uh, we won't remember that. Uh, what's the joke? The joke, well, the joke is there's a, a man... Let's be cancelled There's together. a man in a kilt standing in front of a fire facing outwards, and uh, the, the, the meal is brought in, and somebody says, is that your Ayrshire bacon? He says, no, I'm just warming my hands. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> it's a traditional Scottish joke. Uh, so, yeah, bacon, uh, lovely sort of thick cuts and not too heavily done bacon, quite nicely done. And that's the way I like it still. What was your first bedroom like? Uh, I had to share with uh, I had to share with my parents, actually. I was oh. on a, a little kind of divan in my parents' room. We had a three-bedroom house. Uh, my sister got a room to herself and my two brothers shared a room. And I had to sleep until I was about, I don't know, six or something, in with uh, my parents. And then I was moved that into... That could be the, the reason there were no more children well, after yeah, you. Yeah. certainly prevented any kind of activity, yeah. I think. Uh, <laughs> but then I was moved into my brother's room. There were three of us in this room, which was quite a tight space. But uh, it was good fun. We had good fun. You had good fun, I mean, yeah, with yeah, two yeah. older brothers. What, what were they called? Scott and Alistair. And uh, they, were, they were great fun. They were very kind of inventively funny. Uh, but they were cross-talk comedians together. And so I'd never got a word in. And I tend to think that's why I chose to go into radio, because there was nobody to interrupt me. I was in a room on my own, and I was talking, and people could hear what I had to say. But every time, when I, you know, I was younger by six years, they were doing jokes and that sort of stuff. And if I put my hand up, it was... God, shut up, get out of here, move on. Uh, and they were uh, all away without me. So I, uh, I, I learned to fend for myself and uh, be, you know, bide my time in conversation. My sisters, I had three older sisters, who were born before the war and I was born after, a bit of an afterthought like you. And my sisters in the 1950s, because I talked so much, got up a petition. I went to see my parents <laughs> and said, if we pool our pocket money, can you afford to send Charles to boarding school? <laughs> Because I wasn't like you. They didn't cow me. I kept talking. Right. Um, and they so hated it. And my parents agreed. They couldn't stand the fact that I wouldn't stop talking. But you didn't yet start talking. They no, no. Just no, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't as garrulous at all. I just uh, had to wait. And occasionally, when I was a little bit older, when I was sort of 13, 14, uh, if there was a, a conversation going on, I would just wait till a slight gap in the in the conversation, and I would chuck in a bomb. Uh, quite a good line, usually, because I had plenty of time to think about it. So I dropped in this one and got a laugh. And I thought, hello, hello, I've made it. I've uh, made my brothers laugh. Take me back to that nursery where hmm. your mother has left you cruelly, <laughs> gazing up at the frosted glass, feeling unhappy. Yeah. The first recollection you have of unhappiness. Yes, yes, that's true. You settled into the nursery school, did you? Yeah, I appear to have done. I wasn't there that long because I, I think it was only about six months and then I went to the proper school, Giffnock Primary School, and I was there for four years until the age of nine. And uh, that was good fun. I enjoyed that because primary school is just fun, really, isn't it? You don't really learn an awful lot. Reading autobiography, there's a story I remember of you being a naughty lad. I think it involved you, well, I'm afraid you were peeing 
on a passing train or something. <laughs> yes. uh, we all used to, as we you know, the, had our morning break, we were all used to sort of rush to the outside toilets, which were in a sort of brick-built, uh, unroofed building at the edge of the railway line. And we just, just uh, there used to be a train coming by at about 10.34, I think, from East Kilbride to Glasgow. And uh, the, the great game was always to try and pee over the wall and hit the train, <laughs> uh, which uh, uh, I certainly couldn't do now. <laughs> but um, it was, uh, yes, it was, it was a common game. And uh, I don't think we ever hit the train, but it was uh, regarded as good sport. And were you caught doing that? No, 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 no. Uh, oh, that I was just a game I don't think they ever bothered about that sort of thing. You know, if, if we'd hit the train or somebody gazing out the window, <laughs> that, that might have... <laughs> put paid to it but no no it was just let's all go to the toilet and try and pee over the wall and hit the train were you considered a clever boy i was considered a lazy boy i was considered to have possibilities but uh, no application um yeah i think that's that sums it up i was the, named the laziest boy in the school once uh, which I thought, that's an accolade. Publicly, by the uh, By a teacher, teacher in, in class, yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah. you must be Ken Bruce, you're the laziest Bruce. boy in the... Always, always the surname, Bruce. Just, yeah, yeah. Was this an independent school? Or it was, it? yeah, a uh, private school. So your parents, I mean, that when they've got four children, that's actually, finding the money for that wasn't yeah, easy. Was not it? easy at all. They sent all of us to the school, oh. and by the time I came around, my father's business was contracting. Uh, a little bit. He, did, he had uh, as a, his main business, I suppose, was uh, selling shoes to the big stores in Glasgow. He was the agent for the manufacturers. Oh. He would go over to the factories and say, "He'll take that, that, that," and he'd have a, a box of samples and he'd go around the big stores, big department stores in Glasgow, and sell. Um, so that was his main main activity. And he made probably enough. He obviously made enough to send us to the school. And it wasn't it wasn't an expensive school, but it would still be a financial. At some of these independent schools in those days, they were still beating the children. Was oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They oh, definitely were. What um, did you ever get beaten? Oh, God, frequently, yeah. It was frequently? The, it was the laziest boy in the school. <laughs> they literally took off... Describe what happens. Well, um, in one case, I uh, failed an exam quite badly, and I was taken out in front of the class, two of us were, and given the belt because we were perceived not to have worked hard enough. Um, I mean, we got something like 25%, so what we did fail quite miserably. It was history. And um, uh, I can remember two of us were taken out and given six lashes of the belt on the hands. Uh, the, on the, the hands. The, the Loch be- Gelly belt, which was a, a strap, a leather strap with uh, two, uh, the, the, the end, the sort of halfway through it had been split into two or perhaps three uh, shards, and you were given that. You mean on, like the cat o' nine tails, but this uh, is the cat o' three tails. Three tails, usually two, and, and had that on the crossed hands. The head teacher's study for this purpose. No, no, it was, any teacher could do. Could have yeah. one, and they any would have teacher. it in the room, would they? In the they classroom. would have it in their belt, in their drawer, and would uh, it would be, you know, it would be a, a great mat- man- moment of theatre when uh, it's a right, and the drawer would be open. Oh. You think, oh dear, I'm for it now. Or sometimes they kept it up the sleeve of their gown. You know, the uh, the, the master's gown. It was. Over the sleeve, so they could just whip it out and belt you with a moment's notice. And it was—it was—it was happening to all. Even the the cleverest boy in my class got the belt once. I think it was just to show that uh, nobody was above being punished in this way. And he got it, and he—he he went bright red. And you know, obviously, I mean, we all did when we got it. But I thought that poor guy has—you uh, know—he's been shamed in front of the class for very little, really. And these instruments of not torture, but of for beatings. This was universal in Scottish schools. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The, the Loch Gelly belt was uh, famous. They were all made in the town of Loch Gelly in Fife. 
uh, where there was presumably a, a massive tannery, and uh, these belts were made in various weights and sizes. Um, and uh, each teacher, you know, would get a catalogue, presumably, and decide, oh, I rather fancy this one, <laughs> the three-prong one, that'll, that'll hurt. Or, you know, a slightly lighter one would give a, a more of a sting than the heavier one. You know, I don't know. I mean, uh, but they obviously, they obviously spent a lot of time thinking about it because it was, it was the sole means of discipline. Uh, you know, we never got lines or anything. That was just hold out and belt it. And was it very painful, physically painful? Yeah, it was. Uh, used to, if they, they were supposed to do it on your hand, uh, but occasionally, you know, they hadn't perfect aim, it would go up onto your wrist, just the first part of your wrist, and that would raise two lovely red wheels on your wrist, which would go down about two days later. But, you, you, you know, you certainly knew you'd been punished. And if you took your hands away, as some people did at the last moment, you were given extra ones. They could do a maximum of six. Usually it was two or four, depending on the severity of the offence. Um, and one, once I remember, I'd, uh, this is terrible, oh, it's not terrible, but I'd eaten my lunch sandwiches and I couldn't be bothered going to the bin, so I just put them in my desk. Uh, the, the crusts and the remains of the sandwiches in my desk. The teacher came round and found all this and uh, said, who did this, who did this? Uh, eventually I owned up and was uh, sent to the headmaster for that one and was given six, six of the best for that. Uh, and, you know, it, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was dreadful, but it, it certainly wasn't the character-forming thing that people seem to think it is. Well, it didn't do me any harm. Well, it probably did do me harm, and I'm quite happy to admit it. I, I did not like being belted. I found it was unfair, unjust, and uh, just... Uh, completely wrong to be belting children for very little reason. And it was humiliating. You did feel it humiliated. It was, yeah. It. Although, the, I mean, obviously, it was a badge of honour as well, to some extent. Uh, but it, it was humiliating. And, uh, you know, to go home with wheels on your wrists and your parents saying, well, what did you do wrong? Um, was, Were you was somebody also, who cried as a boy? Did you cry no, no, you? I was very much uh, very Scottish about that. You know, if I had to cry, it was done... It might be just a little pricking of the eyeballs, but that was it. That was as far as you would go. Uh, and I don't think anybody did in our school. Uh, anybody reacted like that. You were not supposed to show. Can you remember the first time you did cry? Not, not when you were at the nursery school because you were just unhappy, but... Um... I can't really, um, because, again, you know, I think the Scottish way of being brought up was, you know, you don't, you don't cry. I was probably an adult, really, before I, I remember crying, which was um, after my father died. I think that was the first first time. It wasn't immediate. It was, you know, sometime afterwards. And how affectionate was your father? He, I always felt he yeah. was affectionate, but he was not demonstrative. Exactly. Um, I, I never felt, you know, he was distant, no. but he just didn't say anything very yeah. much. He used to sit in his chair reading the Scottish Daily Express or whatever, or the Glasgow Herald, and uh, with a tumbler of whiskey beside him, and smoking his Piccadilly untipped cigarettes and uh, just generally getting on. But he had a busy man, busy life, uh, and wasn't to be disturbed. Yeah. Um, and it's a generational thing, too. Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Young I mean, people now expect, you know, parents have got to keep saying, I love you, I love you. Yes. I don't think my father ever actually vocalised those words, uh, but it was never in doubt to me that he did. That's that exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly the same for me. He would never say, never said that in a million years. Uh, and afterwards, he uh, died in 1983, and um, my aunt said to me, uh, your father, 
you know, he would never say it, but I know he was very proud of what you've achieved. I was already working in broadcasting by that time. And he, he, he did never say it, but um, he was apparently very proud. But I never felt that he wasn't, but it just wasn't said. Uh, he, you've got to remember, he was born in 1903. So uh, oh. he was, you know... Well, he was an Edwardian. An Edwardian, And his parents absolutely. were Victorians. Yeah. And uh, he reflected that generation. His his father was quite old when he was born because he was one of the younger ones of a massive number of children. I think it was about 12 children. And he was about 10 out of 12. Uh, and so his father was really old when he was born. So uh, these things do bleed through into the following generations. Did he have a good life, do you think? Yes, I think he did. I mean, he quite enjoyed his, his job. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't work tremendously hard. He didn't leave the house till 10 a.m. Most of the time that I can remember, he'd go into, drive into town, go to his office, mess about there doing things, and then he'd come back for lunch. Uh, and he'd come back maybe about 1 o'clock for lunch. He was only 20 minutes into the office. Uh, he'd come back at 1 o'clock, uh, sit down, uh, have lunch, and then he'd get in his chair and have, you know, a 20 minutes snooze. And at 2.30, he'd get back in the car and go back into town and uh, be home again about half past five. Were he and your mother happy together? Yes, I think they were. I, mean, I certainly no, saw no signs of unhappiness. They, uh, they lived happily together for years and years and years and supported each other in, in different ways. My, uh, my mum was very kind of protective of him, especially as he got older and... Uh, didn't see so well. She was back seat driving or front seat driving with him all the time. Peter, look out! Peter, look! Don't. And I remember once when he was trying to start the car with the starting handle. I said Peter, mind your heart, mind your heart. Don't do that. Get the boys to do it. Uh, so she was always looking out for him, making sure he was you know safe and happy, uh, and he was providing. Uh, and that's I think the way it was for many many families at that time. Hello, it's Giles here, and we're honoured that this series of Rosebud has been sponsored by one of the finest hotels in the world, the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. One of our American listeners, Mickey Maynard, has been in touch to tell us about her memories of staying at Grosvenor House when she was a teenager. Someone must have taken a liking to us because we were ushered into an enormous suite it had beautiful wood paneling, a real 1930s streamlined look, and a huge bathroom. We were told to leave our shoes outside if we wanted them polished, which after our walks in London, of course we did. The next morning, our shoes came back, wrapped in tissue and ribbon, as if they were gifts. We had others to wear, so we decided not to unwrap them, but we tucked them in our suitcases for the trip home. Oh, it's a wonderful story, Mickey. Thanks for being in touch. It's this attention to detail that makes the Grosvenor House Hotel such a special place to stay. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are sponsoring this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. When was you discover your first girlfriend? Uh, I was quite late, I suppose, because I went to an all-boys school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they are terrible things, all-boys school, because they, they don't encourage you to be able to talk to women naturally. Uh, women are, you never see any. It took me well into the teens before I, late teens, before I plucked up the courage to ask somebody out. And that was because uh, I was a, also a member of the local tennis club. And that's where the mingling between the sexes that I'd And who was, uh, I'd the, first, who was the first girl you asked out? 
Uh, her name was Moira. That's uh, I, I don't want to give her surname in case she's still listening. Because yes, yes, and she she did come out with me, but um, it didn't didn't last. I'm afraid. But yeah, I mean, I thought yeah, no, and now I can do it. Now I know how to talk to girls. And was she your first kiss? Yes. Yes, Can you was. remember that as a moment? People talk about their first kiss. No, no. It was, just, it was, more, it was really just a, a peck, I suppose. It didn't mean anything. Well, and, Moira you know. may remember it differently. Maybe. If you do, Moira, Maybe. we have a, a Rosebud website. <laughs> Feel free to send in your recollections. He thinks of it just as a peck, as a moment. She's probably been nursing this for years. Lust has been going well, on if in she's her been head. Nur- <laughs> if she's been nursing it, then she needs to get out more. <laughs> So who was your first serious girlfriend? Um, I think uh, the first serious girlfriend was um, the woman I married uh, in oh. the first first time. Because up until then, it had just been, you know, a couple of weeks and that sort of thing. Uh, and then I uh, met, uh, I'd known her for a little while, actually, Fiona. And uh, we, after some time, uh, got together and then after some more time, got engaged. What's the first thing that attracted her to you, do you think? Well, Fiona, what did you have to offer? How old are you then? Teen, uh, late teens? Late teens, 19, 20, sort of yeah. thing, I think. What, what did you have to offer? I suppose the only thing I think I've ever had to offer is uh, an ability to amuse. Uh, that, uh, you know, a, a line or two and uh, a laugh occasionally. Um, and that's, that's, I think, that's, that's all I've ever had to you offer. You made a chuckle. You tickled yeah. her fancy, possibly, <laughs> literally, ultimately. <laughs> but well done, you. Yeah, hey, I, th- I think it's all and throughout my life. I think I've just been able to sort of slightly make the other the other sex laugh and uh, make them more interested in me as a result. Or oh, come on to the other sex, making them laugh because <laughs> you've done that time and time again. Eventually, we hope you got it right. But <laughs> mostly with my clothes on. <laughs> Oh, well, that you should be grateful that they're <laughs> yeah. laughing when you've got your clothes on. So when they burst out laughing to take your clothes off, you've got to be worried, in my experience. Anyway, so you're at school, yeah. you're a bit lazy. Yeah. You are probably brighter than you allow yourself to be. What at that stage is your ambition? What's your first hope for your life? Well, I was 15 when I first discovered radio. Um, I've not discovered it, but actually thought of it as a possibility. And uh, that after that, you see, uh, my mind just wouldn't take on any other possibilities. I thought, radio is what I want to work in, and I'll, I'll find something else to but this do. This is a bizarre thing. It is. For a normal child, age 15. In Glasgow. In Glasgow. <laughs> but yours is slightly, yours is middle class Glasgow, Yes, oh yeah, very it? much so, yeah. I mean, because... The caricature of Glasgow at that time is there were some parts of it that were very rough. Uh, yeah, it's, it's true, there were. I mean, yeah, yeah. It did have a pretty rough image. Uh, and deservedly so. Uh, uh, there were razor gangs running around in the 50s, and uh, there was terrible, terrible housing. So did you was, ever come across any of this rough side? I mean, did it ever impinge yeah. on you? Did you meet any of these these razor gangs? It was, yeah, it, it did happen. I used to go to, as a teenager, 16 years old, I'd go to dances, and you would... It, it happened, uh, you would be chased up the road by a gang. You know, I, I was a good runner, luckily, and I got away from everybody that ever chased me. But uh, I know that there were times, if you were out late walking, I would walk with a set of keys between my fingers so that if I were attacked, I could do some damage. Uh, just so a key was jutting out between your fingers, or a couple of keys. It's like a knuckle duster, I suppose, in some ways. And you'd have been useful enough with your fists to... No, no. Oh. Uh, I w- <laughs> it made you feel safer. It, it just made me feel safer. And yeah. it would have been, you know, I, I would have felt that I could, you know, 
fight back in some way. Your first ambition in life is age 15, you think, the radio, that's mm. for me. Mm -hmm. What were you listening to on the radio age 15? Well, there wasn't that much, as you will well remember. Um, there was only BBC. There was the uh, Home Service and the home, Light Programme. Home Service, Light Programme and the Third, which oh, was, of course, yeah. be completely beyond my, my interest or knowledge. Uh, and there was, uh, certainly in the middle to late 60s, there was a bit of pirate radio, yeah. a, a Radio Scotland which broadcast from uh, the fourth estuary. And uh, you could hear it in Glasgow. You could Radio Luxembourg, we also could pick up, but very, very, you know, it, it, it swam in and out. And what was the radio you were listening to? Uh, all of it, really. Um, I liked the light programme because occasionally you would get a pop record, uh, but you'd have to go to Luxembourg to hear more pop records, and the reception, as I said, wasn't great. So um, this was people like Jimmy Young, uh, Pete Murray, or they, uh, they later uh, Pete this? Murray, they, yeah, they, but Pete Murray was on Luxembourg when I remember hearing oh. him, yeah. He was, had a reputation of being very rude, oh. for saying very cheeky things. And, of course, I think by today's standards it wouldn't be, but he, was, he made glancing references to sex and things like that, which <laughs> absolutely <laughs> beyond the pale for the BBC. Uh, but, yeah, I remember hearing Pete Murray and Alan Freeman, of course. Is one of your heroes Jack DiManio? He was certainly responsible for my interest in radio because I, I knew of him and uh, I read his autobiography when I was 15. I was sent to stay with my aunt for a while because she was alone for some reason. So uh, it wasn't far away, it was just up the road. But I, sent, I was sent to stay with her and I... In the, you know, I any house I go into, I always have a quick look at the bookshelf. And I found this book um, by Jack DiManio, and I knew the name, so I started reading it. And the antics that he and his fellow broadcasters got up to uh, just seemed to me to be fantastic fun. I mean, this they were behaving like schoolboys, which is what I was at the time. And I thought, well, this is a job I could do. I can, I can go out and be an idiot and set fire to people's scripts and pour water over their head while they're trying to read the epilogue and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I thought, I can, I can do this right now. For people who are younger or living overseas who have no idea who Jack DiManio is, he was a folkloric figure. He'd had a very good war mm -hmm. yeah, and then became a broadcaster. Uh, well, during the war and then in the 1950s, and was the first presenter of the Radio 4 Home Service Today programme. Um, yeah, I, I don't think he was actually the first, but, but he, he was one he of the became ones, the, he? He, yeah, he became, became the, voice, the of voice of it. And he had this very fruity voice Indeed. and difficulty with remembering the time, getting the time quite right. And I discovered when I first met him, when I was a student, I was interviewed by him on the Today programme. And because I was young, uh, he kindly and said, would I stay? We'll have a drink afterwards. And I thought, well, it's nine in the morning. How do you get a drink around? Anyway, he took me down to some broadcasting house at nine in the morning, and we went around the corner to a pub, which was closed. Uh -huh. In those days, pubs were closed yeah. until the evening. And he did a sort of secret knock, a kind of knock, 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 bump, bump. And the door opened slightly. Oh, it's you, Jack. And in we went. And Jack DiManio introduced me to champagne at nine o'clock in the morning. Wow. Champagne, possibly a champagne cocktail, a little brandy. Uh, champagne, lump of sugar, a little brandy inside it at nine in the morning. And you were what age at this time? Oh, I was 19 or 20. All right. Oh, so it, was, it, it was legal. It was, it was, uh, but, well, yeah, it was, yeah. it was legal. But. It was respectable. And he just enjoyed, I think he enjoyed having a new audience to tell old stories to. Yes, yes. Um, but he, well, I got the impression that he was so good because he didn't care. Because he'd had, he'd had this war. I think he had an MC. 
So it didn't really... He just did what he wanted to do. It wasn't important no, compared it, with what he'd been through. Yeah. Uh, and I think there were a lot of people in the BBC at that time who'd had good wars, or yeah. at least they'd been in the war. Yeah. They'd come out with no qualifications uh, and didn't know what to do. And they went up to the BBC and the BBC, oh, you seem like a good chap and you come. You know, can you speak? Off you go then. Uh, but there was, was a lot of drinking going on at that time. I remember Jack DeMario got the sack. Um, for, again, I think he made David Jacobs laugh at some important <laughs> time. Uh, <laughs> Jacobs was introducing the epilogue, and uh, Jack thought that he was looking so holy, he took a slip mat off one of the gramophones, record decks, little rubber slip mat, and held it over his head like a halo. And Jacobs immediately corpsed, started laughing, uh, in the middle of the epilogue, which was absolutely verboten, that was the worst thing you could do. So uh, Jacob's got the sack and Emmanuel got the sack as well for, for laughing and causing him to laugh. It's quite bizarre, I think, to be a 15-year-old boy. You might well have taken out a biography of Danny Blanchflower, Stanley Matthews, the great footballers of the 1950s and 60s, or a war hero, but a, a, a late middle-aged radio man called Jack DeManio. It's almost preposterous. Well, uh, it was there, so I read it. And I suppose I must have had some kind of interest in radio to make me read it. Were you an odd child? I mean, there was nobody else in your school who was interested in going into radio. No, no, that's true. That's absolutely true. Most what of them do you were, think it was in your upbringing? It's performance. I think I had some sort of performance gene in me, but I didn't want to be an actor. Uh, and radio is the, the simplest kind of performance where nobody sees you, uh, everything goes with the voice and uh, I found that you know but we're making little recordings onto uh, my brother had a reel-to-reel tape recorder and then I bought a little cassette recorder and I um, I found that you know I sounded okay if I could just uh, get the accent to uh, be a little less Scottish then I could probably get a job as a BBC announcer. Before you get that job just give me a little bit flavour more of the other first things you enjoyed on the radio. Do you listen to radio comedy? Yes, I loved radio comedy, Round the Horn, and uh, not so much The Goons. I sort of missed The Goons. I was a little bit late for them, I think, in that they'd stopped by 59, I think, and I was just get, I was only eight. So. Also, how funny were they? Well... Dare we say this? I mean, Beyond Our Ken, yeah. hilarious. Very cleverly written. Um, and even Educating Archie... I rather liked. Uh, yeah, I, I liked the premise. I thought some of the jokes were a bit lame. Uh, yeah. But Take It From Here, I thought oh. it was hilarious. It was beautifully written. Was that Jimmy Edwards and Dick, June Dick Whitfield? Bentley and Dick Bentley, June yeah. Whitfield yeah. took over from somebody. I remember that. Alma Cogan. She Is took that? over from Alma Cogan. Oh, my. But it was written by Muir and Norton, yeah. uh, uh, who never, ever talked down to their audience. They oh. wrote as if their audience knew a lot of things, like they'd seen films, they'd read books, and they did parodies and pastiches of these things, which were hilarious. And uh, the, the Glums, I think, is a work of genius. Oh, Ron, beloved. <laughs> yes, Seth, all that. Par Glum is just a, one of the great Jimmy characters Edwards. of all, all time, yeah. Extraordinary, yeah. absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. I've, I mean, I've been very lucky in my life because I've met lots of beautiful and brilliant actresses, dozens of them over the years, and I'm meeting some more doing this Rosebud series. But none of them has ever in any way, shape or form, come on to me. The only two oh. people in my entire life who have ever made a kind of romantic gesture towards me were Frankie Howard and Jimmy Edwards. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, 
You don't surprise anybody, I think, with Frankie Howard. Well, uh, you, I'm yes, sure, yes, had the yes, Frankie Howard yes, experience. Yes, yes. There's nobody I've met in broadcasting who didn't. No, no everybody had, yeah. had their knee, yeah. knee grasped. Uh, uh, Jimmy Edwards, uh, I didn't realise uh, it was gay until some years later, Simon Brett, a uh, great radio producer, told me that when he was a young producer, mm. he'd booked Jim to come up and do a, uh, a show with him. And uh, Jim arrived with this young man who he introduced as his chauffeur, which was fine. And uh, then an hour later, of course, Simon starts chatting to the, the chauffeur and says, uh, yeah, well, what, was the, uh, what was the journey up here like? And he said, oh, it's all right, we came by train. So... Uh, <laughs> The, the chauffeur. That's, that's a euphemism. Yes. It's not my uncle. It's yeah. my chauffeur. That's very good. I kind of blew the gaff a bit. Oh, that's so funny. So yeah, uh, dear of course, dear. Jimmy Edwards was to put this correctly, according to uh, our mutual friend Barbara Windsor. She explained to me, "Oh, with Jim, you've got to understand. There's a touch of the Tommy two ways," <laughs> and I think that was the story. Yes, yeah. But I yeah. remember going to uh, do an. Well, I was actually working on a book with him. And he met me at the railway station near his house. Driving to, from the railway station to his house, we stopped off at 11 at the pub for a couple of drinks. Then we got to the house, bottle of champagne mixed with orange juice. Then we had the lunch and he was cooking steaks, flames everywhere, <laughs> with a couple of bottles of good burgundy. Then we had balloons of brandy. And then I looked up and saw this man, who was then in his 60s, stark naked, Whoa. <laughs> saying, it's time to try my Swedish sauna. <laughs> I then made my excuses, explained <laughs> yeah. that my children were waiting at home for the bedtime story. But he took it in very good part. That's that's always the, 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 the what you want to happen. It, that, the, the, it was never taken too far. It was just exactly. Know, it's on offer. It's on offer if you're if interested. Yeah. If you're not, yeah. happily, you you move on. That's that, that's the way. So here you are, this 15 year old boy who's read this book and thinks this is the life for me. Yeah. Is it partly uh, because you weren't able to talk because your brothers did all the talking? Your parents were loving but not very giving. Mm-hmm. They were parents of their generation. And you thought, actually, here I am with this microphone. I can, in your head, I can just be myself. Yeah, I wasn't very confident. Uh, and uh, even, you know, probably even today, in a pub, small talk will fail me after a little while. So uh, this was a chance just to sit and concentrate yeah. on speaking. And I find uh, I'm much more lucid speaking into a microphone than I am in normal conversation because yeah. somehow the brain concentrates and thinks, You've just got to speak in proper sentences, finish them, and finish the thought, particularly before you move on, and then shut up. Uh, so that, that's, I'm much better at doing that in front of a microphone than I am in polite society. When you left school, was there thought of university? Yeah, well, I didn't really think about it. I, I, I scraped the, the minimum qualification, uh, but I thought I don't want to stay in uh, academic pursuits anymore. I want to go into something else so accountancy in the profession it was a, a, an apprenticeship so you went to the office every day nine till five and then on a friday night you went to classes uh, for a couple of hours can you remember what your first wage packet was your first it, it was uh, well the, the, not the packet but the annual remuneration for an apprentice was 330 pounds and how did you break out then from this perfectly all right life First accountancy, then actually I'm going to be working in this car firm, yeah. doing the bookkeeping. Were you were an accountant? No, 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 because oh. I was so bad at accountancy. Oh. They got, I was thrown out of the uh, apprenticeship, uh, and I 
went to this friend of mine who worked in the car hire oh. company. He said, oh, we can come do a bit of car washing and get some money. Uh, and I went there, did eight hours in the first day and got paid in cash. And it was already about three times what I was getting paid in accountancy. So I thought, oh, this will do. So I did that for a couple of months. And then the manager said, um, yeah, why don't you come and do a bit of work in the office? Uh, and then I got a full-time job in the office. And then I was made assistant manager. And were you with Fiona by then? Uh, yes, in the, within that time, yes, when I was working in the uh, car hire firm, yes, definitely. And what were you like as a husband? Uh, well, most of the time, I think, you know, to begin with, I was a very good husband. <laughs> you were quite I keen think, in the I early days. I, I think I became not a terrific husband, to be honest, in the And why the was that? Because years. you were working too hard, you were too uh, selfish? You I were. think, well, well, I got into broadcasting and I, I think I was, yeah, I was too concerned with what I was doing. Did you have children with Fiona? Because yes, you've yeah, got two, six in all. Six in two all. Of them, uh, two of them Fiona. with Fiona. And do you remember your firstborn? Remember the moment? Of your first oh, yeah. child being born. I mean, born. I, was, I was present for all births. Oh. Um, and yeah, uh, Campbell, who's my eldest, uh, when he was uh, young, uh, we were still in Towling Nappies. So, uh, it's <gasps> Do you remember something called Nappy Sam? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. The, oh, big, the buckets. The great nappies. buckets. And also nappy made sand. your knuckles red. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, you don't go near it. <laughs> oh, you didn't? Well, that's maybe where the marriage collapsed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I did. I changed I did the, the nappies, but I didn't do the I nappy I changed sand. the nappies and I did the nappy sand. Did you? Well done. Yeah. Well done. Well, no, uh, no, no, no. The bucket was a step too far for me, but uh, I changed nappies, certainly. And what was your feeling about Campbell? Because you're, you're in your early 20s. So you're, young, you're a young person to have a... Yeah. Oh no, I, I, I loved having uh, a child and having a, a baby or a young child in bed next to you or between the two of you is just, it's one of the greatest, greatest experiences of life, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it with every single who was, who was the second one you had with the piano? Doug, Douglas, and uh, he was just down staying with us for the weekend, uh, last weekend, with his kids um so yeah and then uh, you know things started to go a bit wrong a bit wrong do you remember somebody called beatrice lily yes yeah you she had this wonderful routine where she would come out in front of the curtain she was a little 1940s 50s entertainer and she would sing this is my first affair so please be kind <laughs> And then she'd disappear behind the curtain, and then she'd reappear, looking terribly rattled. And she'd <laughs> sing, this is my 31st affair, so please be quick. <laughs> um, so we haven't got time to go into all your relationships, <laughs> no, thank you. is the point I'm making. <laughs> yes. You can just give us the ones that you think are interesting. Yeah. But the, the, and obviously it's a, it's a sadness. Oh, yeah. When, yes, and, yes, yeah. Uh, how yeah, old are the it, children when your marriage broke up? Oh, quite young, really. Uh, five. Oh, Five, oh. four. So, uh, yeah, just one just started school. And do you think you were too young to get married? Is that the... Uh, yeah, probably. And uh, maybe you were of the generation that didn't really live together until you were married. Uh, that's true. That so, is true, yeah. Um, so you that didn't really true. get to know one no, another. Not, not completely. What did your parents make of your split up? Uh, not very happy, but no. again, because they didn't express much emotion, it was just kind of... Oh, mm. Mm. This isn't so good, you know, and that was it, really. And was it a low for you? Did you do you do you have oh, yeah, lows? Yeah. Oh, that was a massive low for yeah. me. Yeah. And uh, how does it come out when you when you are low? How uh, are you low? It doesn't come out in work. Um, I actually find work therapeutic. Being on the radio is really helpful. Uh, although um, after my second divorce, I found that I was playing records, which really you know sad records, you know, like Roy Orbison crying or something like that. It uh, would really bring me down. It would be a struggle to do the next link. But uh, most, I mean, that was 
temporary. Mostly work has been a huge therapy for me and got me through an awful lot. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I did have. Uh, did you look for help? Did you go? I did after my second divorce. I went to a therapist just to talk it out um, because, um, as I said to you know everybody at the time, I've been boring all of you, all my friends, with you know how I'm feeling. I'll go and speak to somebody else, uh, which I did, and that that was really helpful and didn't take long at all just right. to work me through it. Do you remember somebody called Dr. Anthony Clare? Yes, yes. psychiatrist chair. Yeah, he told me because. We had a long conversation about this. You know, if I wasn't paid, I don't think I could do this because people come in here and they sit in the psychiatrist chair and they bang on about their problems. And he said, oh, God, I'm so grateful I'm being paid. I don't think I could face listening. You know, and I thought, this is this hugely sympathetic man when yes. I hear him on the radio. Yes. Turns out he's just thinking about the just, cash. He's staring at the window yeah, thinking, yeah. how long have we got to listen to this and stuff? basically, talking therapy is just you're talking and yeah. they're listening yeah. and, and you're getting it out of your system. Occasionally they're saying, but... This means that you, you know, or something like that. And what know. did they say? What was the most helpful thing that we can share with other people that you learned through this? Um, I'm not sure there's anything that... Uh, uh, there was. Uh, there were a couple of insights into my relationship that made me think, oh, that's not true. And then afterwards, I thought, oh, that is true, actually. Um, but I don't think there's anything I, that I took from it that would work for anybody else. It just, It was just... Spilling one's guts, I think, that actually uh, did the trick for me. It was really just getting it all out there and thinking, right, it's time to move on now. I mean, were you, are you, as many men are, a terrible narcissist? You spend your life talking about yourself and about the world and being entertaining and amusing and people adoring you. I mean, I've been people... I mean, I've said to people, you're one of the people that are going to be on rose by this. Oh, I love him. I've always loved him. Oh, every morning he is the best. You know, he got the biggest ratings because people love him. So that's very nice. It's very nice. Does that make you actually pretty impossible to live with when you leave the studio? Uh, I like to think not because I don't put any store by that measure of success. Uh, I don't look at my audience figures and think, oh, fantastic. I just think... Well, that won't last. Or, you know, what does that mean? Uh, it just means people don't really know who you are. You know, they think you're just so nice and lovely. Uh, there's much more to me, which is possibly not so nice and lovely. But uh, that's, you know, what I'm presenting and that's what they're enjoying. But I don't walk away and go home and think, I'm a big star. I don't, you know, don't. Uh, the kids, uh, you know, kids will always take the piss out of you. I mean, in my case, I'd say my wife would think that I was. Uh, thoughtless, not in an unkind way, but in a self-absorbed way. Yeah, I think I mean, that is, I am. Is that, I mean, yeah. is that what, I mean, what I'm trying to get at is you've been married three times. Clearly, yeah. it's not worked a couple of times. No, no, no. Why was it in a nutshell? Uh, I think I was too absorbed in my work. Uh, for me, the job I do has always been what I, what I am and who I am and what I like to do. Uh, I think if it all ended tomorrow... I'd be okay. I could walk away from it. Pretty sure that's the case. But uh, I do enjoy doing it. And uh, the reason I'm not, well, there's a couple of reasons why I'm not retired now at the age of 72. Uh, one of them being that I still have 
children going through education. Mm. Uh, the other, though, is that I enjoyed doing it, and I really loved doing it. The children going through education is everything. You've got six children. <laughs> yeah. I've only got three. I mean, I, I need the money. Yeah. I mean, as I often say, money is the one thing keeping me in touch with these children. Yeah, yeah. We do need the money. Mock not, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> a couple of old men here yeah. who've got a lot in common. Supporting yes, generations. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> six kids is fantastic. The last one, let's go back to how you get into broadcasting in a moment. Yeah. But the, since we mentioned the first two, there are four more, and that these four come from your last union. Uh, no, one comes from my middle oh, marriage. Oh, very good. Uh, oh, yes, right. You've got so a little bit of... Yeah. That's uh, the one from your middle marriage. So uh, adopt my daughter, Kate. Kate. And then I have... And is she lovely? She's lovely, absolutely lovely. What does she, she do now? She works in an app company. She's oh. doing that sort of thing. She studied French at university, but moved into a completely different area, which I think is... Rather common. And the last two children with your... Uh, for the last three, because we're, we're only up to three now. Yeah. So, I mean, don't, don't make me lose count, otherwise <laughs> I'll be in trouble. Uh, yeah, I've got three with Kerith. And, uh, and what's your last wife's name? Kerith, K-E-R-I-T-H, unusual name, but uh, means... And when did you it. first set eyes on her? Uh, at the Eurovision Song Contest in 1998. I was uh, single by that time and had been single for quite a while, about three years. Yeah. And, Listen uh, to that, Gareth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it just made exactly. that quite clear. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we were working together just for a brief few moments, and uh, we'd never met, but we, we were stuck together waiting for things to happen and got chatting, and then uh, at the after party I uh, went along and asked her to dance, and then we went out uh, to meet up the following week and pretty much been together ever since. You asked her to dance. That's mm. quite interesting. Well, it wasn't like a ladies excuse me or anything like that. It was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a bit of a riot, the oh, after see. party at Eurovision. I just went along and said, do you fancy a dance? You know, and so oh, I see. I thought you saw. So it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> doing the Belita. <laughs> I saw you, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Not exactly you quite swept her off your feet, her feet. You took her into the moonlight and said, you can dance with me forever, darling. I'm in room 372. No, I Maybe don't. Eurovision, but we can go global. I think anybody who knows me would know that's not my nature, and Kareth especially would say that. So we have to go back to your first break into broadcasting. Yeah. Because how does that happen? How do you make your dream come true? I go to hospital radio uh, in Glasgow, oh. and uh, they... Well, actually, I went up to meet somebody at the BBC... Because uh, every so often I would have a little bit of a kind of, you must do something about this. Uh, and I'd written to British Forces Radio when I was about 18. And uh, they had done an interview with me in a, an audition and said, uh, well, you know, uh, don't give up the idea, which was enough to keep the flame flickering, if not actually burning. And a few years later, I, I again had a kind of, if you don't do this now moment, uh, so I wrote to the BBC and uh, or somebody at the BBC and they said, oh, come up and have a look. And they said, well, you should get in touch with Eric Simpson at Hospital Radio Glasgow, HBS Glasgow. Uh, so I did and he put me on the air and I just had a great time. And he said, uh, after my first show, he said, well, um, that was frighteningly good. And I thought, oh, that's good. That's the, well, I'll take that. Uh, so he said, uh, yeah, you, you can do Sunday nights from now on which I did for a couple of years or so. But then somebody, I, because they were all in touch with each other at the BBC, somebody said, uh, somebody's leaving from the presentation department at BBC Scotland, the announcing department. Uh, why don't you send a tape up? So I did, and uh, got invited up for an interview, and then heard nothing for months. 
Uh, and again, being kind of too reticent, I didn't, I didn't think of phoning up until eventually I did, after months. And uh, the guy I'd spoken to, Cecil Hawthorne, my first boss, said, uh, oh, I, th I thought you were starting next month. And this was the first I'd heard about it. And I whoa. So I gave up my job for a three-month contract, summer announcing, on BBC Scotland. And, uh, and when was this? 1977. Wow. Yeah. So since then, you've been earning your living as a voice on the radio. I've been on the radio five days a week, apart from holidays, ever since. Gosh. Uh, and it just seems the only job I was ever destined to do and ever wanted to do. Uh, and I've been very lucky. I mean, there have been times when my number has been up and I've sort of avoided it uh, somehow. Uh, and there have been moments when I've been sort of reduced to the ranks a bit and brought what was back your in. What was you, can you remember the first bit of rejection you had in your broadcasting career? Um, actually, it was probably when I had started at Radio 2 and I was doing the breakfast show, and um, after only about nine, ten months... I was hauled in and told, that's it, you're coming off. And we're you know, giving, I was doing a two and a half hour show. And uh, we'll give you, well, you can do an hour, because I still had a bit of contract to run. So you can do an hour from 10 till 11. And I thought, well, that is just, you know, that's, that's public humiliation. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a big, big rejection. You're slightly too at the whim of whoever the controller is. I remember, oh, yeah. uh, do you remember somebody called Francis Line? who was the controller of Radio 2, and I suppose in the 1980s. Yeah. I was on um, TVM at the time, and she got me, and I liked her, and she liked me. And I was used as the summer relief for Terry Wogan. Right. And I thought, this suits me, this, like, I like this. And then she left. Hmm. And I left too. Yeah. I mean, the well, next yeah. post, but somebody came in and said, who's this? We don't want this sort of... Yeah. Ponzi voice on the... No, thank you very much. Can't see his silly jumpers anyway. Get him, get rid of him. I, I, the, the conversation I'm imagining, that's not how it was expressed to me. But that's obviously... That, is that what it was? It was people just thought, isn't quite right for what we're looking for yeah, at the moment. It was somebody new came in, yeah. and uh, it wasn't quite at the controller level, but it was one level below, and this person said, yeah, you've got to, well, we've got to change things around. This is not working, so um, you, you, you need to come off. Uh, and I got a lot of support, actually, from the public. That was, that was nice. But it was probably the best thing that happened to me because I didn't think I was a breakfast broadcaster. It was just a, I'd taken the role oh. because it was on offer and there wasn't, you know, it'd be daft to turn it down. And I thought, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, then, you know, I'll, I'll probably... But make, what, make if you me, what's the difference between a breakfast broadcaster and a mid-morning well, broadcaster? Well, you're very much... At breakfast, you're, uh, certainly then, less, perhaps less so now, you're very much the focal point of all attention on the network. Uh, if the breakfast oh. show didn't do well, then that was the whole network suffered. Oh. Um, and all... It was believed at that time that all figures flowed from the breakfast show. So, so breakfast I was show happy I'm not every to other be show. breakfast. And on mid-mornings. And as it turned out, you can get pretty good figures mid-morning as well as I as oh, Forgive me, you know yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> you would be the most successful broadcaster of our time in terms well, of audience ratings. Full stop. Uh, yeah, yeah, don't of, argue of with it. Current, of the current... Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Of, about uh, the, of our time. The early 20s, yes. Of, of, our, yeah. of this century. It, it, it's been The most well. successful broadcaster of our century in our country. But the thing is, I don't know why... Uh, or how it's happened, so um, I don't dwell on that. Um, I just carry on doing what I do, 
uh, and hope that it continues to be. Well, the nice thing about your life is you keep having firsts. You've had your first stint now on commercial radio. And when you left, why did you leave? And why didn't they name... I mean, the building is called Wogan House, I agree. That's great, because he was great. He yeah. was actually a lovely man, wasn't oh, he? Oh, yeah, he was terrific. So, but there, there isn't even a portico. I, I still pop in there to do things for Radio 2. I was there the other day. Not even a, a cubbyhole, ah, it says. Yeah, but I left rather than... Oh, you left. Yeah. They didn't. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. I didn't die, die in harness. Uh, uh, and I, that's I, what you got to do. I, I well, you better go I wasn't back. sacked. Oh, so, dear. Uh, yeah. So you just left, decided... Yeah. Well, why did you decide? I mean... I just felt I'd done enough in yeah. the one place. It was a long time. A very yeah, long you know, time. And uh, I, I thought I'm doing the same thing every day. Uh, and there was a point of saying that, you know, I can't enthuse over all the new music I'm having to play as much as I could over the old music. Uh, and I didn't want to get to the stage where I was bad-mouthing yeah. some of the music. Uh, uh, and that's, that's just... Or pretending to like yeah, things that have been like put it. in front yeah, of you. Yeah. You can't be... You know, you've got to be true to yourself. So, with the, I didn't realise this, you don't choose your own music at all? Or, or you do uh, choose... I mean, in the you, show, what you used to no, do? No, you, you don't really. Uh, it's built around you and your personality, and the music you like tends to be used quite a lot, but it's not chosen by you. And uh, sometimes, you know, you, you have a thing called the record of the week that isn't to your taste at all, so that, that becomes more difficult. And the game you invented? Popmaster. Yeah. Um, you own that. That is interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was... a. Uh, Accidental, almost, and that it, it was doing quite well. It started in '98, Popmaster, and it was it started doing quite well. We got some good audience figures, and it became the peak of the the morning. Uh, and so I said, we might have something here. So I said to the BBC, "Is it is it something you'd think about trademarking?" And they said, "Nah, I don't think so. No, I don't oh. think so." And I said, "Well, is it all right if I do it?" And they said, "Yeah, if you like." Yeah. It wasn't, there was no enthusiasm one way or the other, really. So they missed a trick? Yeah, possibly. So I, I went out with Phil Swern and we trademarked it. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, we didn't use that for years, actually. It was just it was a kind of trademark which just kept being renewed. You pay a fee and you get it renewed every few years. And we didn't do much with it at all. I love the BBC. I mean, I've been doing a programme called Just a Minute on Radio 4 now for... A long, long time. For 40 years. And I, I love it. But there is, it's a big national century-old institution that has protocols and processes and a machine. And if you have an idea, it can take years for that idea to even reach the first stage and then it going, all of that. Were you also quite thinking, actually, I've still got some juice in me. I want a bit of freedom. Um, Freedom perhaps is the wrong word. I certainly did think I've got a bit more to offer. I didn't want to be you know, declining over the next three or four years and still doing the same show, but everybody around me getting younger and thinking, "Uh, am I the old bloke in the corner here? I didn't know. I was the youngster on the station. And then almost overnight, I became the veteran. Uh, And I didn't want to become the old grump in the corner saying things aren't what they used to be. Or, you know, any new idea that comes in, no, we tried that, didn't work. Uh, Which does happen. And I just felt, I would get more kind of bitter and entrenched. And has it refreshed you? Do you feel in your new life, your new... What, what hours are you on, people who haven't yet heard? What hours are you on? What's the station called? It's Greatest Hits Radio. I'm on from 10 till 1 every day and 10 morning till 1 p.m. And uh, we have Popmaster at 10.30, where it used to be uh, when I was working at the BBC. And uh, I do feel 
that it's given, it's rejuvenated me to a certain extent. I'm having to work in a slightly different way, not massively different, but a slightly different way. Uh, I have to uh, include ad breaks and uh, also promotions, uh, you know, money-making promotions, winning, winning big sums of money it doesn't bother me in the slightest you know that's commercial radio that's what it's for and i've never had a problem with commercial radio uh, i liked working for the bbc i loved working for the bbc and i think it's a great institution as you do but um you know i maybe for the last couple of years i, I can't be blamed for just trying something else just how's your years. story going to end uh, i expect it will end with me uh, being carried out of a studio yeah uh Maybe mid-broadcast, or uh, it may be that I get, you know, oh, I something so. wrong or can't no, do no, this, that, next wrong. thing. I want you to die mid-sentence. I'd quite like... <laughs> <laughs> For a sudden moment, <laughs> listeners, I thought he actually had gone. He pulled the most extraordinary face. He can do rictus like nobody else. No, but that is the way to go, I actually. So. To I'd go, like you know. Yeah. I, mean, I don't people... want to upset the listeners, because it can oh, be a bit oh, disconcerting. Oh, but I do. Yeah. I... I I not to upset the listeners. Um, I was making a film for the one show the other day, and uh, they were anxious we were by River's Edge that I would fall in, and you know. Uh, and I said, "Well, if I do, please keep the cameras rolling. <laughs> you know, I want this to. Uh, this is what we're doing." Yeah. And they said, "Oh no, I don't think we would be." I said, "Oh, for God's sake, oh, yeah. we yeah. want to be seen." To, I mean, if you're doing it in years gone by, yeah. they would have jumped at the chance, yes. jumped at it. I okay, so I was just you are it. the I'm most successful broadcaster of your kind of our time. So well done, you. Two things I want to ask you finally. What is your advice to aspiring? If there are 15-year-olds listening to this, uh, is it to find a book by Jack DiMaggio? <laughs> is it to find your autobiography? What would you advise, first of all, aspiring broadcasters? Go to a radio station and have a go at it. If it's a commercial radio station or a BBC local station and they're looking for somebody just to come in and empty the bins or make the coffees, then do that. If it's a community station, get in there, a hospital radio station, anything like that. Get in, try it, see if you like it. And if you don't try it, you'll never know whether you do like it. But there's lots of opportunities, a massive number of radio stations out there. Uh, if I were young, I'd be in a radio station somewhere. Even if I stop being employed by professional stations, I will probably want to do some commercial or some community radio as well, you know, or instead. Do you I'll remember the newsreader, Richard Baker? Yes, of course, I knew Richard. Uh, well, I knew Richard and admired him hugely, and I know his son, James. And James told me that Richard Baker, in old age, was living after his wife had died in a sort of care home. And he was in his 90s by then. And during the day, he would read the newspapers and cut out stories. In the evening, when the rest of the residents at the home were sitting around the table, he would sit at the top of the table and it would be Richard Baker reads you the news. Well, I that's That is fabulous. That's absolutely fabulous. So in I your love to do folks' that. home, yes. Ken, yeah. we're going to have you, we're going to equip you with a... You know, a little studio, and Perfect. you can talk to the other residents. Perfect. Uh, and uh, I will say, because I've got a great friend called Alan Boyd, who's a, mm. a radio producer at the BBC, produced Friday Night is Music Night for years, and we worked together, and one of my very, very best friends. And we all say, we'll go into a care when we're going to Brinsworth House together, or uh, the other one. Uh, in, uh, what's the... What's the, um, the other one, I know the, the other one, one. Yeah, we'll, oh. we'll go into the... Oh, uh, you'll play the piano, and I'll introduce... The, <laughs> I'll introduce and then we'll go to the bar, and we'll stand there after, or sit if we can't stand. Uh, and that would be absolutely perfect for me. I can picture you there. <laughs> Tell me, though, what... You've had a long life. 
You're on your eighth decade. You've been very successful. What have you learned? What is the advice that you would... Or what, what have you learned? What would you share with your children? Do you have grandchildren now? I have grandchildren. Six? I have three um, grandchildren, yeah. yeah they are, uh, what can you pass on from your experience? Do you know, I always think that it's a bit presumptuous to pass on great gobs, gobbits of knowledge from one generation to the other. Uh, the only thing I would say is find something that makes you happy. Find something that makes you happy and do it. Uh, because either in work or in life or you know, in private life or both. If you can get both running alongside both horses in tandem, then your life is made. Listening to you, spending time with you makes me happy. So, Ken Bruce, thank you very much. Charles, it's been a, a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Let's move into the old folks' home together. Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I and I could, I, if you do the mid-morning shift, yes, yes. maybe I could do lunch. Yes, absolutely. That's it. And now, here's Giles Brandreth. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, Great my, morning. My. Loving Popmaster. I'm, I'm talking so smoothly now. <laughs> Loving Popmaster. Because yeah, you know the yeah. voice apparently yeah, begins, to go. Go. Yeah, it yeah. begins to go. It begins to go as time goes by. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you've, done, you've all done very well. Yes, it yeah. gets thinner, doesn't it? This is why I'm drinking all this water and we go to the loo because the voice is getting thinner all the time. That's it for this week's Rosebud. Next week, well, a rare foray into the world of politics. On the whole, on Rosebud, I'm inviting people who I just think are fascinating to be a guest. And that doesn't include very many politicians. There are odd exceptions to that. Nicholas Sturgeon is coming up soon. But next week, I've got somebody who was a conservative. He's called Rory Stewart. He's fascinated by politics and I'm fascinated by him by more than his politics. I want to know what makes him tick, and I want to know what his first memory was. So join me and Rory Stewart on next time's Rosebud. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts, and music by Phil Leppard.